Dear church family, in the last 10 or 11 days, as you know, we've lost two mothers in our midst. The love, the gifts, the labor of a mother is hard to describe. My dad always used to put it this way, no matter how much you can do for your mother, you can never pay her back for everything she has done for you. A mother, by nature, being a mother, is called to have a giving disposition, a heart of tremendous servant love. And that's particularly true when a mother is saved and knows the Lord Jesus Christ and can exercise her motherhood out of that love of Christ. This past week, as we sat with the morning family, we experienced something quite remarkable, I would say. We, we knew that their mother was a, a real giver. We knew that Gloria Swan had just devoted her days to helping other people, but as we listened to the extent of it, my wife turned to me at one point and said, She was a modern-day Dorcas. So, that statement stuck in my mind. I was actually going to go back to the book of Mark, but I, I looked up that Dorcas passage and I said, you know, I need to preach on that. Because too often our Christianity can be too detached from our, from our works. And where there is a vibrant life lived for the glory of God that exercises itself by serving the church and serving sinners and reaching out in a variety of ways, sometimes more with words, sometimes more with deeds, it is something to to sit up and take notice about. Well, tonight I'm, I'm not going to be talking about these mothers, but I'm going to be talking about Dorcas because the Bible sets her forward here as an example to follow. But the events of this week direct us in this direction. So I want to look with you at simply Dorcas, Dorcas, her life, her death, her resurrection, by the grace of God from this passage in Acts 9. I'll read again just the first verse, Acts 36, there was at Joppa a certain disciple named Tabitha, which by interpretation is called Dorcas, this woman 
was full of good works and alms deeds, which she did. Solomon writes, a gracious woman retaineth honor. Who is this gracious woman? Well, the Bible says one whose heart is quickened, whose prayers and alms come up for memorial before God. One whose life is filled with Christ-centered, man-centered benevolence and kindness. Such a woman, and by extension a man too, of course, possesses honor not only, but the Bible says retains honor. Retains honor. Even after her death. Her godly influence. Her example will survive. Proverbs also says, The name of the wicked shall rot, but the memory of the just is blessed, and the righteous shall be had in everlasting remembrance. Well, Dorcas is such a woman. Wherever the gospel is preached, her godliness shall be told as a memorial of her. She is an evident example of the scriptural passage, favor is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman that fears the Lord, she shall be praised. Give her of the fruit of her hands and let her own works praise her in the gates. So who was Joppa? I mean, who was Dorcas in Joppa? Well, Joppa, today it's called Jaffa, by the way, J-A-F-F-A, is situated on the Mediterranean Sea, 35 miles northwest of Jerusalem. It's often mentioned in Scripture. Joppa served Solomon as a harbor town when timber was shipped by rafts from Lebanon. And Joppa, Jonah, boarded his infamous ship. In Acts 10, Peter was authorized in a vision in Joppa to preach the gospel to Gentiles. Residents of Joppa heard the gospel proclaimed by the evangelist Philip in Acts 8, verse 40. And among those converted under Philip on that occasion was Dorcas. Dorcas was a woman of some means. Dorcas was her Greek name. Her Aramaic name was Tabitha, which means gazelle, or more literally, beautiful and graceful. Dorcas was a a greatly blessed woman, blessed with the beauty of grace. And our text says she was blessed with the beauty of grace in two ways. First of all, she was a disciple, verse 36, a disciple of Jesus. Notice what it says. Now there was at Joppa a certain disciple named Tabitha. 
to be a disciple of Jesus is to be discipled by his teaching and to be disciplined by this master teacher and this glorious Savior. So she was a pupil in the school of Jesus, a pupil of the perfect teacher. Her dignity, her joy was to sit at the feet of him who is Lord of all and of whom it is said, none teaches like him. Discipleship involves developing by the grace of the Holy Spirit an attitude of enjoying learning from the mouth of Jesus. It's more than a profession. It's wanting to conform to His image. It's wanting to be like Him. To be a disciple means you want to be like the Master, like His Lordship. You want to follow Him. Jesus said, if any will be my disciple, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. That was Dorcas. Is it you? Do you long to be a disciple, a real follower, conformed to the image of Jesus? But secondly, she wasn't only a disciple. She was an eminent example of discipleship. Notice what it says. She was a woman full, not just a woman of good works, but a woman full of good works and alms deeds which she did. Now, there's not, there's not many Christians that can be described this way. How many fill up their lives with, even Christians, non-essentials? Things that don't really matter long-term. Or maybe selfish living. Or even things void of godliness. Maybe not openly sinful, but just trivial. Others are content with the basis of Christianity. There's no inward disposition within them to excel in the ways and the works of God. No passion to let their light shine. That light of discipleship. It's possible, you see, to be a true Christian but lose the zeal, lose the zeal to be full of good works. There's so few today that really can say, like Paul, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. But where there are, where they are, those lights shine. Dorcas shone in her generation, and everybody knew it. William J. said, minister of Bath, England. He, by the way, he was a minister there for 62 years, one congregation. 62 years. He said this, when you are a Christian, you should be anxious not only to be safe, but to be exemplary. Not only to have faith, but to be strong in faith. 
not only to gain heaven when you die, but to glorify God and serve your generation while you live. That's Dorcas. She was full, not of pretenses, not full of words, but filled with a practical religion of substance. Her religion possessed her heart, her life. She abounded in obedience. She was full of good works in alms deeds. Now I want you to notice, I want you to notice in this text four things we're told about her good works. First of all, her particular care for widows. Isn't that interesting? Verse 39, it seems obvious that Dorcas spent a good bulk of her time serving widows. And of course, that's very biblical. Widows and the fatherless are more frequently mentioned by God in Scripture as having a right to our kindness and love than any other groups of persons. James says, pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and the widows and their affliction, and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. Widows have special needs. They're lonely many times. They've got special fears. Obviously, none of us can meet all the needs of all the widows, but wouldn't we do well to focus on our attention on maybe just a few or, or several widows that are near to us or accessible to us and, and spend some extra care on them, Christ-like care on the widows and the fatherless and widowers, of course, by extension, showering them with acts of kindness and actions of charity. That's the first thing you notice about her. And that's why Peter comes and he has to, wants to be alone with Dorcas to wrestle with God, to raise her from the dead. It was the widows that were weeping that he has to say, I'm sorry, but you need to leave me alone now with Dorcas. A special love for the widows. Number two, you notice that what she gave especially was clothing. Isn't it interesting? She furnished the poor widows with clothing. This was a common act of charity in those days. She was obeying the command of James. When thou seest the naked, thou shalt cover him. You see, Joppa actually had many widows because there were many fishermen in Joppa. And in those days, fishing was one of the most dangerous occupations. Boats would be shipwrecked and fishermen would drown. And so women not only lost their husbands, but they also lost their incomes. There was no social security in those days, no other governmental help or, 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 or helps from other directions. So Widows could often become very poor. So Dorcas went to work to give the widows clothing. Clothing was one of the greatest expenses in those days. She went to work one stitch at a time. 
She sold for as many as she could. She was known for her tireless work among the poor. She persevered with deeds of kindness and compassion. Notice she didn't give them money, but she looked for specific needs. And she sowed accordingly. Now, that wasn't the easiest way to give. It was very time-consuming, but it was profitable. And she felt gifted to do that. That's how I can serve, she thought. Number three, we notice about her good works that she did the work herself. Notice what the text says. The good works and alms deeds which she did. And then later, coats and garments which Dorcas made. She didn't get them made and pay for it, although that would have been kind too, but she expended the energy herself. So her alms were not only her gifts, but her alms were also her deeds. She lived unselfishly. She was always thinking, what can I do for you and you and you and how can I help out? How can I share Christ-like love? May I say it this way? Each garment she made was stitched with threads of love. Each seam was closed with kind thoughts. Each coat was hemmed up with sympathy. She dedicated, dedicated all her days to a God-glorifying purpose. The purpose of Proverbs 31, 18 through 20. She seeketh wool and flax, her candle goeth not out by night. She layeth her hands to the spindle, and her hands hold the distaff. She stretcheth out her hand to the poor, yea, she reaches forth her hands to the needy. You see, it's possible to do good things and to give to charity, and that's, that's great, but not do anything that costs you anything. Dorcas wasn't like that. She visited the fatherless and the widows in their affliction, not only, but actually gave more, gave of her efforts and time to minister to their needs. So it's a great thing to give money for, for the mission field, for example. And yet we can do that without ever participating in any missionary endeavor. Have you ever thought about that, that to only give, but actually go out and do? Go out and do. Other people, even Christians too, are active, but only half-heartedly. Oh, I guess I better do this. Well, they do it out of some legalistic motive, or just because your conscience is speaking. But that's not Dorcas. Dorcas does it with all her heart. All her heart. She has the spirit of Peter. Silver and gold have I none, but such as I have I give to you. I'm going to use my gifts, whatever gifts I have. I'm going to use them for others. Do you have the gift of prayer, for example? I don't know if Dorcas had that gift. It doesn't say but if you have that gift to pray with people, go and pray with people. What about your time? 
Could you carve out just a tad bit more time in your daily life to reach out to people who are in need? People in the bulletin or people you hear about. Are you using your gifts? And then fourthly, you notice about Dorcas's good works here, that she exercised them while she could. She soon got sick and she died. I, I love the way verse 39 puts it. She did these things while she was with them. While she was with them. She didn't delay. She viewed life as, a, as an open window to serve the Lord. Some of us can be future benefactors. And that's, that's not bad, of course. That's good, too. But too often, we always hope to help someday. Someday. But we procrastinate. And the Bible actually does not speak very well of procrastination. You know that. Say not to thy neighbor, go and come again, and tomorrow I will give. Tomorrow may be too late. She gave while she was with them, while she had opportunity. Some people are benevolent when they die, and not while they're alive. And of course, that too is good, to, to give of what you've accumulated to good causes after you die. But Dorcas did it while she was alive. She got the joy of doing it. You can give with a cold hand after you die, but you can give with a warm hand while you live. Some people give out of necessity, not out of choice. Dorcas gave out of choice. Her, her, her giving, her lifestyle of servanthood was purposeful, was intentional. It's what motivated her. How many precious opportunities come our way to assist others that we allow to pass by without responding? How many of us will, will grieve one day that we didn't do more for you fill in the blank? Maybe that neighbor who seemed to be in great need or expressed a little interest in, in the Bible, but, well, we're busy. We're busy. And I know what it is to be busy. I know what it is to, to struggle to do, to do more. And there's only so much we can do. I, I grant you that. But are we living out our Christianity in what we say and do? And is there a significant portion of our time devoted to being servant-hearted, servant-hearted like Dorcas. Her life was full of good works and alms deeds. But then the Bible says Dorcas died. She became ill. She passed away. There's no exemption from death. As Reverend Biles said this morning, it seems like death is all around us. A lot of people have died. A lot of relatives in our congregation have experienced a loved one dying in the last few months. But it will come to all of us. It is appointed to all men once to die. And after that, the judgment. 
We all will face death and judgment. Death and judgment are the two surest things that are in our future. I read once that a study revealed that 85% of the things that people worry about in this life don't come to pass. But there are two things that will always come to pass, which many people don't worry much about. Death and judgment. Now, it's a great comfort, of course, when a loved one dies, when you can honestly look each other in the eye as relatives and say, well, it's bittersweet. It's sweet because we know she is better off. It's bitter because we'll miss her here. That makes an incredible, incredible difference. So, if we love them in the Lord, we may also rejoice when they go to be with the Lord. But in another way, this increases our grief because we will miss the spiritual life. We will miss the, the shining light that exuded from their lives. We'll miss them as personal intercessors for us. We'll miss them as benefactors and protectors and we'll miss the good works that they do, the alms deeds that they give. You see, the church, the world, the children of God themselves, all are really hurt when God's people die. It's hard to let go of a child of God. As the old Dutch divines used to say, heaven becomes one richer and the church becomes one poorer. We miss those who have gone before us, who lived vibrant lives for the Lord. Dorcas was like that. They missed her. You can read it throughout the whole passage, can't you? They missed her greatly. They're, they're weeping. They, she, unlike most people in those days, you had to hire mourners who would... Who would have the artificiality of crying and wailing and they collect their tears in bottles. But you don't read of any women hired for mourning here. No, the widows just wept. They, these were true tears, not crocodile tears. These were tears for, for Dorcas because they would miss her so much. You see, it's hard. It's hard to let go of true believers who are really living for Christ. We miss them. We miss them. I think even now, as I'm preaching, certain people are coming in my memory that used to sit among us who were dear children of God, and I, I still miss them. And I know you, you do too, because their lives were full of good works. And sometimes the Lord takes them away younger, which makes all the harder. That's true in church history as well. King Edward died when he was 18. And all of England was turning in a reformed direction, and God snatches him at 18. Andrew Gray died when he was 22. He asked the Lord on his 22nd birthday if he could go to be with the Lord before his 23rd birthday because he was so tired of worldliness and of sin. And God gave him his request. Hugh Binning was 27. Robert Murray McShane was 29. 
And there's a host of God-fearing women who died in childbirth throughout church history and by other means when they're very young. It's hard. But we have to bow under that too, don't we? We have to say, oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and His ways past finding out. What He does now, we don't know, but we shall know hereafter. Dorcas' death was a great blow to the Christian community in Joppa, especially the poor widows. Sickness, her sickness and death came as a shock to the needy. And it left a void, a void behind. Believers in Joppa came to prepare her body for burial. They washed it. They placed it in the upper room located on the roof of their home, her home. But strangely, we don't read, we don't read, do we, that they anointed her body as was customary. Bodies of loved ones were normally buried the same day in Israel because of the climate or the day following at the very latest. But they were always anointed immediately. Was it so that they knew that Peter was just three-hour walk away and they didn't want to anoint her because they couldn't come to the grapple with the realities of death yet? Or maybe that they thought Peter... God could use Peter to, to raise her from the dead, and so they wouldn't anoint her yet. Well, the Bible doesn't say. But it does say they sent two Joppa Christians to Peter. It said, come right away. Not delay. Don't delay, Peter. And Peter goes immediately. He, knows the, he feels the urgency of the invitation. They act out of faith in sending these two men, and Peter responds by faith by going right away. Ultimately, their hope, no doubt, is to ask Peter not to come to do the funeral, but to prevent the funeral. That God might use him to raise Dorcas from the dead. So Peter goes. It seems useless from a human perspective. Seems unreasonable to think of her being raised from the dead. But he goes. With God, all things are possible. And how Peter's thoughts must have been multiplied as he walked as briskly as he could from Lydda to Joppa. Three hours. And he's rushed into the upper room where Dorcas's body is laying. And there he meets a heart-rending scene. The Bible says, verse 39, all the widows, all the widows, not just two or three, all the widows stood by him weeping and showing the coats and garments which Dorcas made while she was with them. There was no need for human eulogies here, no need for hired mourners, as I said. These were genuine, sorrowful, friends. They missed her. Have, have you ever thought about this? When you die, who will miss you the most? It's often the people for whom you've given most of yourself. 
when you pour out as a servant of Christ upon people, whatever gifts you have, it's those people that will really miss you. That's true in every form of ministry, from the actual, actual ministry as a minister, but also in every Christian's life as you minister to others. Those will miss you most to whom you have invested most of your love. Solomon said, when the godly perish, there is weeping. When the wicked perish, there is shouting. I wonder how much we would be missed if we died tomorrow. How much would would you be missed? Would I be missed? But people just say, well, it was God's time. And uh, yeah, we'll, we'll miss him. We'll miss her. Will it be a, a dry-eyed funeral, though? Because no one will miss us too much because we haven't really been servant-hearted out of Christ to many people. How tragic that would be. How tragic that would be. See, if we're ready to die, then of course we've got all kinds of sins, but they are washed in the blood of Christ. And we want to live out of gratitude to God, a life full of good works, not to merit anything, and not just simply to be missed. That would all be selfish, of course, ultimately. But we want to do that to the glory of God. And we want even our funeral to be used for the salvation of the lost and the maturation of the saints and the glory of God. Yes, it is better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of feasting. And so here's the irony. He who would find his life must lose it. He who would really live a worthwhile life must not be self-accumulative, but self-giving. It's just the opposite of what the world says. Just the opposite of how the world says we should live. The way to be prepared to die is to die spiritually to your own righteousness before death comes. I love the way Spurgeon put it. He said, yes, death is the king of terrors. But if you're dying every day to your own righteousness and living unto Christ... When it actually comes to physically die, you just have to die one more time because you're used to dying. A servant-hearted person is used to dying to his own feelings, his own desires, his own selfishness. He's used to learning to live that he gets satisfaction, actually, not out of receiving or accumulating, but out of giving. That's the beauty of Christian servanthood. It is more blessed, Jesus said. He summarized it all in a few words. To give than to receive. So these are all lessons we need to learn from the death of Dorcas. But there are more lessons coming yet because Dorcas does get resurrected. And we want to look at that in our last thought before, after we sing from Psalter 20. Four, Psalter 24, all stanzas.
Happily, Peter is given to do more than weep with them who weep. He goes to work. He goes to work in dependency upon God. He is going to seek God's grace to do the impossible, to raise Dorcas from the dead. And Peter uses three means in our text for that healing. The first means is solitude. Solitude. Notice what verse 40, 40 says. But Peter put them all forth. In other words, he sends everyone out of the room. He sends everyone out of the room. Out of the urgency of the situation. To be alone with God. But also out of humility. He doesn't want to be a hero. He doesn't want to wish to be seen. This is sacred work. He's going to do it alone with God. This is not about Peter. This is about God getting honor for himself. About God raising Dorcas from the dead. How good it is when our good works, good works, don't forget, are works that are done to the glory of God. They're done according to the spirit of the law. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God above all, thy neighbor as thyself. And they're done by faith, by true saving faith. Don't ever forget that, because otherwise you could think that good works is something that man can do in his own strength. This is, this is the three criteria of good works, which human nature never could do. Glory of God, spirit of the law, and done by faith. So, those good works are rooted and grounded, usually, in a spirit of prayer. A spirit of learning to be alone with God, crying out to God. A person who lets his light shine is someone whose light is first shining in the inner closet with the Most High. Peter puts them all forth and then goes, secondly, to prayer, to prayer. Solitude and prayer, solitude and wrestling prayer belong together. How often you see that in the Bible. Jacob was left alone and then he cried out to God and God blessed him. You've got to be alone with God and with his word. Prayer. He kneels down. He prays. He doesn't want to act on his own initiative. He doesn't just say, Tabitha, arise. No, he gets them all out of the room. Solitude. And then he goes to prayer. He knows he's entirely dependent on God's power and God's grace. He prays for power to perform a miracle in harmony with God's will. That if it might be pleasing to God, he might restore Dorcas to this grieving group of widows, and by extension to the grieving church of Joppa, so that she might continue her work among the poor, continue being a light for the Lord Jesus. And then number three, solitude, prayer, and the Word of God. The Word of God. Well, where's the Word of God here? Well, you've got to remember Peter was with Jesus for three years. 
And what did Jesus say? What did Jesus say when he raised that little, that little girl um, of, of Jairus from, from the dead? He said, Talitha, arise. It was the word of Christ. And so Peter turns himself to the body of Dorcas, the dead body. And like Abraham, against hope, he believes in hope. And not considering the body as now dead, lest he should stagger at God's promises. Peter speaks the very same words of Christ, only one, word, one letter difference. Not Talatha, but Tabatha. Because Talatha means little girl arise. But Tabatha, you see, there's only one letter difference. He's saying, you whose name is Tabatha, you arise. But he's using the very words of Christ. He's seen Christ do it. He doesn't rely on his own wisdom, you see. This is the point. Tabatha, kum. Tabatha, arise. He leans on the miraculous power and the authority of the word of Christ. And the Bible says she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. You know, the Bible is, is, uh, is great at underestimation. I mean, this is a stunning miracle. And it just says it in the simplest of language. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. So simple, yet so miraculous, so wonderful. All our questions of curiosity about how it happened, they're all left unanswered. It's not the point. We don't know where her soul went during this interval. Did it, did it dart up to God for a few moments? Nor if she could distinctly remember what had taken place in the state of separation between her soul and body. Oh, these are not the important things. This is not the point of what God was doing. The secret things belong to the Lord your God. They're revealed to you and your children. What is revealed? Well, what is revealed is this is an unforgettable moment to see God giving back through Peter, Dorcas, to the church, to see them receiving their benefactress back. It was as if Peter was saying, try your tears, give honor to God. Here is Dorcas, he's heard your supplications. And so Peter turns Dorcas back over to her friends with no fanfare. He doesn't credit himself. He seeks no human applause, no vain glory. He just resigns her to those who need her services. And the believers are staggered. They respond with great joy, with great thanksgiving. And even... The word spread to, to all throughout Joppa, not just in the churches, but in society, secular Joppa. And many believed in the Lord. Maybe with all the good that Dorcas did in her life, maybe she did even more good in her death. Many believed in the Lord. God has a way of doing that. When we, when we live our lives for his glory, our death our death can be a time as people talk about God's grace in our lives where other people are jealous and other people are convicted. How many people have been converted at the funeral of a God-fearing father or a God-fearing mother or a God-fearing child 
or a God-fearing grandpa. Thousands and tens of thousands. My dad used to pray fairly often. The older he got, he'd say, Lord, let us be like Samson, who slay more and bear more fruit in his death than he ever did in his life. You want to live in such a way that when you die, your death will make an impact on people as well, by the grace of God. Well, I want to conclude this sermon with giving you six lessons, six lessons that we can learn from this uh, wonderful, wonderful history. The first is this. This remarkable resurrection teaches us not only the obvious power of God, that's very obvious, but also the tender goodness of God. The tender goodness of God. God has compassion on the widows. He sees the widows weeping. He sees the burden that it is for them that Dorcas is no longer with them. And he gives Dorcas back to them. He's a God of tender compassion. He will regard the prayer of the destitute. What a blessing that is. Number two, this wonderful history teaches us the importance of beneficent giving. Beneficent giving. You know, if we were, if we were left to judge the situation, and I were to say to you, now, what's more important, that God would restore to life Dorcas or Stephen, who was stoned to death, who was a man full of faith, a deacon in the church, a leader among the deacons. You, you might say, well, yeah, restore. Lord, restore. Stephen. But God revives the one and leaves the other. Why? So it seemed good in thy sight. You, you have to bow under the sovereignty of God in these things. But perhaps this is also used to teach us that we are often improper judges. Let me say that again. We are often improper judges of real usefulness. I'm going to make a strong statement here. I don't want you to take it and run with it beyond what I'm saying. I'm saying this could be. I'm not saying it is, but it could be. One godly woman praying in an inner chamber, radiating godly and blessed Christianity, full of good works and alms deeds, may well be of more service in God's kingdom than several ministers, elders, and deacons combined. A good, vibrant, full of faith, full of assurance, life, live for the glory of God, full of good deeds, may be as valuable as good preaching. It's possible. God doesn't raise a military hero or a politician to be a hero or some church leader to be a hero here. 
but he blesses one who makes garments for the poor, one stitch at a time. Isn't that amazing? The Lord takes pleasure in those who, like himself, delight in mercy, like Dorcas. The Bible puts it this way. He is not unrighteous to forget their work and labor of love in ministering to the saints. He is not unrighteous to forget their work and labor of love in ministering to the saints. You know what this should teach us? All the clamor in so many churches, I'm, I'm so grateful it's not in our churches yet. All the clamor to go directly against Scripture and install women in office. And why can't they be deacons? Why can't they be elders? Why can't they be ministers? It's all unnecessary. Women have a thousand things they can do in the church. They can be useful in so much exercise of their gifts. In the office of believers. In the office of tender compassion. That men cannot match. Women have greater, greater gifts at extending that tender compassion than men in general. There's all kinds of things. We can do. I still remember sitting in a Westminster Seminary classroom where my professor said this. He said, all the focus is on why can't women be dot, 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 ministers, elders, deacons. Why not focus on what all the thousands of things that women can do? And so he wrote an article on what women can do in the church. And there's plenty of work for women to do in the church. Full of good works. In alms deeds. Dorcas isn't hankering after what she can't have, but she's using what she does, has been given, and she puts it for use to the glory of God. Lesson number three. This story certainly teaches us to make conscientious use of the gifts that God has given us. Dorcas all by herself is not a particularly striking woman. She's not gifted as a talker, as far as we know. Uh, it even seems that, as far as we know, marriage and motherhood were not to be her portion. We don't know that for sure, but there's no mention of it. But she did have one gift. She was a doer. She was a giver. She was a giver. Now, she could have bemoaned her, her lack in life if she wasn't married and she wasn't a mother and, and she desired those things. She could have bemoaned that and sat, sat in a room all by herself and felt sorry for herself and ignored her gift. She could have said, I'm not a prophetess like Miriam. I cannot lead like Deborah. I'm not a poet like Hannah. I've got no sons to dedicate to Jesus like Salome. She could have been jealous of all these wives and mothers. Instead, she said, no, no. I'm just going to use the gifts I have. And I'm going to use them to the full. That's what a disciple is. You don't use the gifts you don't have. You do use the gifts you do have. You see, there are certain gifts I don't have at all. I've actually joked with the choir director a couple times already. I said, I think I'm going to join the choir. And he goes, no, no, no. You just, you just stay where you are. Do, do, you've got plenty of work to do. Well, that's exactly right. I'm not gifted at singing. I don't belong in the choir. 
But I've got to use my gifts. You've got to use your gifts, you understand. That's the point. Discover what those gifts are by, by practicing, by reaching out, helping others. We've had several families come and visit us lately, and several people coming into the church. They're lonely. They're looking for people to befriend them. Can, can you reach out to them? I was talking to one couple this morning. I was talking to another couple a few weeks ago. They said, how, how can we be, get friends in this church? I said, well, there's a lot of people here. But you see, you've got to reach out. Most of you will have that gift. Most of you have the gift of having people over, people who are lonely coming to your house. Get to know them. Love them. Reach out to them. There's all kinds of gifts you can use. Now, it's amazing. Of all the women mentioned in the Bible, Dorcas is the only one of whom it is said she was a disciple. Now, of course, there were others that were disciples. But it's interesting that Jesus uses this word just for this woman, a certain disciple named Tabitha. That is, someone who follows me fully, Tabitha. She was full of good works. See, these are good works that flow out of the love of God. And she uses every gift God has given her to the, to the max. Remember when Moses procrastinated at God's call because he thought he lacked gifts. You remember that? Finally, God said to him, what is that in your hand? Moses said, a rod. And God basically said, well, go and work with that rod and you will be my servant. And Moses did. And Moses was blessed and useful. But if God had asked Dorcas the same question, what is that in your hand? Dorcas would have said, a needle and a thread, Lord. A needle and a thread. And God showed her these are the gifts she was to use to serve him, a needle and a thread. What gift has God given you? Even if it's seemingly unimportant in your eyes, are you prayerfully seeking ways of exercising it? Are you full of good works? I got to just say this. One of the most impressive things last week to me when the family was talking about, about Gloria and all the different things she did for people. Many things that the, some of her own family members had no idea she was doing. She didn't parade it, you see. And she didn't ask for any attention for it. Neither did Dorcas, you see. Maybe it even seemed unimportant. But you see, in God's eyes, a cup of water is important. A meal is important. An act of kindness is important. A prayer for someone else is important. There are no small things that are done out of Christ, in Christ's eyes. No matter how small they seem to be in our eyes. A cup of cold water. Can you give that to someone? What gift has God given to you? Number four, 
This passage teaches us that God will honor those who honor him. Isn't that amazing? God will honor those who honor him. What a privilege it was for Dorcas to do this work. And God honors her in his word for honoring him. Dorcas was instrumental in starting a revival. Do you understand that? Verse 42, and it was known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. God moved Peter to pray for her, to call her to arise because she was so needed by these widows and God honored that out of his free grace. And Peter then stayed on in Joppa for a while and people inquired about the Lord and indirectly she became a great evangelist. That's why today there are all kinds of Dorcas societies all over the world through many churches. They named their women's society Dorcas Society. God honors those who honor him. Number five, notice the relationship here between faith and good works. She was full of good works, fruit-bearing branches that flowed out of the root of true saving faith. Faith and good works are wedded together by God in the Christian life. Dorcas's branch was full of the grapes of Eshkol, if I may put it that way. Sweet, ripe, large, beautiful grapes. But each branch, each cluster of grapes, each, every fruit was in the vine, in the vine by faith. And that accounts for its beauty and its fertility. And finally, number seven, or six rather. I think last one I said six when I meant five. This is number six, the last one. The secret of Peter's personal ministry is shown here. The reality of his master and the reality of prayer. What a beautiful example Peter is here. Pleading upon Christ, wrestling in prayer, and God hears his cry, and God brings these twin realities together. The reality of his master and the reality of prayer. And when Christ and prayer are brought together, there's no end to what might, God might accomplish. He will do exceeding abundantly above all that we could ask or think. So let, it, let the final word of this sermon be, Lord, teach us to pray. Amen. Gracious God, bless this simple, beautiful, powerful, enlightening, encouraging story to our hearts about Dorcas. And help us now to go out and to thread our needles, whatever needles thou hast given us, and go to work. Reaching out and be full of good works and alms deeds out of true saving faith in Jesus Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let us close with 317. 317. We'll sing one, two, and four.